This is Carl. This is Mark. And this is Sarah. And this is Retrograding. Yes, this is Retrograding, the show where three 90s kids give adult looks to our favorite childhood movies. This month, we are taking a look back at Flight of the Navigator to see if our nostalgia is warranted. Now, Mark, this was your pick. Um, so you're going to start us off with a 60-second synopsis, which I will get a timer ready for here. And you already know this, but for the listeners, I am... Fairly certain it will be much less than 60 seconds this week. I think the plot of this movie is pretty straightforward once you get into it. Oh, like, absolutely. This is like they find a ways definite to drag children's it out, film. But I always just narrow it down to the most important things that actually pertain to the main plot, or at least I try to. So, so this one, there were lots of things that I could cut out to make it shorter. So I think we should be good. All right. Are you ready? Sure. And in three, two, one, go. In 1978, David Freeman is sent into the woods to bring his brother home for dinner, but accidentally falls in a ravine and gets knocked out. When he wakes up, David discovers that eight years have passed, but he hasn't aged. A secret government agency takes David for study, and they discover he can telepathically communicate with a recently found mysterious object. Following a voice in his head, David sneaks into the spaceship where he meets the robotic pilot and learns that the, that his brain contains the craft's navigational charts. As authorities close in, David picks up the controls and flies the ship to safety. After the pilot extracts the maps from his brain, the ship time travels to the point where David was originally abducted and drops him back with his family, who are none the wiser. The end. All right, got in in about 40 seconds. I will say you did skip over a large part of I the did. plot. However, uh, that part of the plot is pointless, yep. as is, we will get to it, most of this movie. Uh, so, <laughs> I agree. let's get into long form. Uh, what did you see as an adult that you may have missed as a child? Which, for me, was everything. <laughs> I did not see this film as a child. I saw several films like it, but not specifically this one. So, I recall specifically this movie and i don't know why i remember seeing this movie at all i think it was on television one time and i watched it and i don't think i ever saw the actual beginning of it i just saw it once he was in the spaceship oh okay that's about halfway through. yeah so <laughs> i think i saw it as a kid and it was intriguing to me with the sci-fi and him you know and as a kid seeing another kid flying a spaceship and all this and the pilot or robot, whatever you want to call yeah, it, of the uh -huh. spaceship is the artificial intelligence yes, of the spaceship was was dumbed down for a child audience. Well, ish. I have a definite remark on that when we get to that point. Well, I yes, me too. Um, and I so I remember really thinking that this was such a cool thing that a kid could get his own spaceship and fly oh, it around. Yeah. I remember absolutely nothing about the plot, why he was in a spaceship or uh -huh. flying it around. 
Yeah, David gets a sweet new ride in this film. And I'm pretty sure I only saw it maybe that one time, maybe twice as a kid. So you and, saw half of it twice. Yeah, maybe. And recently, so I listen to a lot of music while I'm at work because I have a job that allows me to just listen to music and zone out while I do my job. So so I, I do listen to a lot of movie soundtracks and stuff and then um, it just random music will get recommended to me and start playing and i think that i heard the soundtrack to this and i was like i know this music but i don't know why i know it and so i looked at, i had to go look at and see what was playing and that kind of just got this back in my head and so i figured well we should watch it again and see what i liked about it which turns out i must have liked it because i was a kid but <laughs> oh well I will give this film a lot of credit on some things because the emotional moments in this film hit me way harder than they did for our last movie, even though, like, both of them are going through a very tough situation. Uh, but I won't make direct parallels with them because they are very different movies. Uh, but I would say the emotional moments of this worked really well for me. But... My first comment, we're going to start off uh, the very opening of this film, <laughs> which we talked about. We're, we're sorry Sarah's in here because she would absolutely love it because the film opens on a flying saucer going through the skyline of New York and watching it, I was very uh, amazed that like, wow, this is the way the film is opening. We're just starting with aliens coming <laughs> to the city. Millions of people have to have eyes on this thing. This isn't normally the way a science fiction movie starts. Usually it starts in secret and may remain in secret. The big uh, thing that they're trying to prevent is that getting out into the public. But this, it's in the public eye immediately. And it turns out this is a giant red herring. The flying saucer <laughs> is an actual frisbee that a dog catches in its mouth. And this, this film just opens at a dog frisbee throwing competition. You know, that common thing we all went to as children. <laughs> Which... Uh, uh, well, obviously, I don't remember that at all from the first time that I saw it, but possibly because I didn't start watching till after that part had already happened. Yeah, it's uh, I've had films like that before. Back when I owned HBO, which I haven't done for a while, I always caught uh, The Social Network, which is a brilliant film, but I have never seen the beginning of that movie. I caught it in different points in the middle and then watched it till the end and every time, but I have no idea how that movie starts. I have never seen that. It's very good. We won't do it for the podcast because it's too late, but you should yes. watch it. It's great. So this is the first of many red herrings in this film because they know the audience knows the beats for an alien movie and that the audience would be looking out for the, the aliens to show up. Uh, and so the, the Frisbee is the first one. When they're leaving this Frisbee competition, this family, David's family, is walking to the car, and the people that they're passing are all looking up into the sky behind them and all just not moving as if, like, they're being mind-controlled or whatever. Or kind of like the scene, like, Independence Day, where yes. there's, like, a big shadow and everybody just stops what they're doing and stares at the sky. Yeah, and then David turns around and looks up, and the shadow they're watching just happens to be a giant blimp. Like, it's as if these people have never seen a blimp before. <laughs> That's how important this dog frisbee competition was. They had TV coverage from a blimp. Yeah, one of the things I'm very curious about, like, 
granted, they wanted the um, the red herring. Granted, they do put in a thing where David wants to teach his dog, a Bruiser, to learn how to catch a frisbee. But this family doesn't know anyone in the competition, and I'm I just am curious. Why would you go to what seems like a very small scale competition if you don't know? any of the competitors that is a very good question i well and i just know he was because while the competition is going on he's throwing a frisbee to his own dog trying to get and the dog just watches it float away (laughs) Mm -hmm. so i just remember that he he was trying to teach his own dog maybe he thought he was going to be in the competition someday Uh, but maybe but maybe he has aspirations yeah but even then you could do that at home without going to the competition to practice so the other small thing i noticed because this film has a lot of small little segments that i want to get to the first one is in this competition we're looking at all the competitors the dogs what have you there's a group that all has the same uniform they seem to be a team and i'm i don't know if dog frisbee throwing is a team sport it seems like it would just be an individual sport between the owner and their dog you would think so. I, maybe it's like that dog su- puppy Super Bowl thing that they play on. So TV, it's dogs competing with dogs. I guess. I don't know. I've never been to one of these, which is why we should have had Sarah at least do the first five minutes of this movie. She but, would have a lot of opinions on the puppy bowl for yeah, sure, and that would be her only opinions on the whole movie, probably. <laughs> dogs and more dogs, and that's the end. All right. So after the competition, they get to establishing this family unit. It does seem like a fairly well-adjusted family, uh, where in a lot of these children's films, the internal struggle comes from the family unit. Either the the dad is you know involved in his business too much, or he's somewhat abusive to his children. We don't have this at all. They seem well-adjusted, perfect, ideal American family with their two and a half children. Uh, the only thing is David doesn't get along with his brother, because they're both young and... You know, they're calling names back and forth. But honestly, it seems like the ideal family. They, uh, they're they planning on going out for the 4th of July to launch fireworks. They drop the little kid off at a friend's house. They get home. Um, and the mom sends David out to go pick up his little brother. This is where uh, we... And it happens, like, so quickly in the film. Yeah. Uh, because there are much larger plot points that they want to get to where David goes to find his brother. He ends up running into his brother. His brother tries to scare him, goes home, but the dog is barking at literally nothing. Uh, and so he's got to go find his dog. In doing so, he falls into a ravine uh, and wakes up hours later, goes home, and his parents don't live there anymore. <laughs> like, this is where, like, the first emotional oats started hitting me because, like, a kid getting lost in the woods and then wandering home hoping to find safety and discovering that his parents aren't there, nobody he knows is around, that is legitimately scary for a little kid. Yeah. I guess I don't have experience with going home to something like that, although, so, family history here. Sure. We went on a trip one time to a big city, 
Um, and we were waiting for the train to take us around to, to where we were going. And I was all excited to get in the very front car of the train and watch the tracks go by out the front window and whatever. So I go jump in the front car and turn around to see that my family was not in the car with me. And as the doors close, I see my dad is standing there outside the doors looking at me because he was trying to come in and get in the car with me and he was stuck on the platform. So here I am on a train going around a big city all by myself when I was 10-ish. Oh, young, young kid by myself. And it was... I, so I guess I can kind of relate to not knowing where your family is and not knowing what you're supposed to do as a kid because <laughs> you're looking for the comfort of your family, at least something that you know, and they're not there. Yeah, so my immediate thought here... Oh, and before we get too far, there's a third red herring while David's walking through the woods where he, he looks up and he thought thinks he sees something in the sky and it ends up being uh, a water tower. A clear reference to, like, War of the Worlds or whatever... But yeah, it's the third alien red herring. But interestingly, when he falls into the ravine, he doesn't see a spaceship. And so I wasn't quite sure as to what this film was necessarily about, having not seen it as a child. Because he just, he falls into the thing his dog was barking at, which was nothing, wakes up, and then his parents don't live at that house anymore. And so I initially thought, like, oh... He's been removed from the world. He doesn't exist anymore, and therefore his parents maybe never had kids and never moved into this home. And that's, like I said, I don't think I had, if I had seen the beginning of the movie, I don't remember anything about it from the when I saw it as a younger person. And so when it got, I was waiting, all those red herrings, you know, I'm waiting for, okay, he's going to get picked up somewhere or he's, and I remembered the part later on where he sneaks onto the ship. Ah, so I'm like, okay. I know he has to end up at some random facility somewhere where he's going to sneak through past all the adults and get on this ship, but I don't know what all this beginning stuff has to do with it. So at that point, again, he falls down this ravine and wakes up and his family is gone, and I had no idea what was happening, because even though I'd seen it before, I don't remember any of this stuff having having been there. So it's, it is very, what you say disconcerting you oh, know yeah. it, it it's just kind of like you don't especially with all the red herrings they keep giving you you don't know what's happening as an audience and then suddenly his family's gone and you have no idea where he is in the world because you don't know if his family even exists anymore so the being of this film is great at establishing genuine emotional moments because when david finds that his family doesn't live there anymore he talks to the woman who answers the doors like well who are you my parents live here. Why are you in our house? And he rushes past her and finds that all the furniture is different, even though all the rooms are the same. And he runs up to what was his bedroom. Uh, and there's the master of the house, the man uh, reading in an evening coat and uh, reading a newspaper. And, like, he tries to run down the stairs to escape, but the woman is at the bottom, the man is at the top, and he just collapses to the floor, being overwhelmed with not knowing what's going on, and starts to cry. And, like, he's 12 years old. The, whatever's going on is very upsetting to him, and I, I feel for this little kid. 
Uh, and so, to explain to our audience, he ends up going to the police, uh, who find a missing persons report, um, and start asking David some questions. What year is it? Who's the president? That sort of thing, just to establish his mental state. And they end up taking him to his parents' house. But this is uh, the big thing in the film, where his parents are much, much older. David's been gone for eight years, but hasn't aged a day. Which, so when he sees them from the police car, he's like, oh, it's my dad. And he just jumps out and starts running. And then as he gets closer, he's like, well, you're my dad, but you're not my dad. What happened to you? Like, your face is so much different. And then I, I think as the parents, it would be a really weird situation because... This is your son who has been missing for eight years. You thought he has been dead. Suddenly here he is, but he looks exactly the same as he did eight years ago. How do you deal with that as the parent? Like, yeah, like, I don't know, but like, they've been waiting so long for him. And here he is still a child. It's just like, that's what I really like about this film is it, it posts really good questions about here's a kid who doesn't understand what's going on he's been gone for eight years doesn't understand why how does the family deal with that how does his brother deal with that what is the rest of his life going to be now that he's lost touch with the the world that he knew and like the the loss of youth um is a a a very concerning thing uh, where, you know, you can no longer be a child. You are forced into adulthood through events that happen to you. And that's what's happening to David here is he was just 12 year old, was just a kid. And now he's in this crazy situation having to become an adult, though still just wanting to be a child. And I think probably what what helps him the most is his brother, who they used to. I mean, they were their their siblings, so that's just the relationship they have. They used to always call each other names and fight and whatever. Now his brother, who used to be younger, is suddenly the older sibling and is there to help him and take care of him. And he's actually willing. He's actually being nice and trying to help. Well, yeah, and like, oh my. A lot of what I was thinking about during the movie is what must the younger kid's life have been where he used to be the younger brother. His older brother is gone. Now he's an an only child. And his par- he talked about how his parents printed up missing persons posters and made him put over the posters up all over town every weekend for months. So, like... His entire life, that entire eight-year span, has been about finding David, and now here he is. But yeah, I really like the younger brother character because they um, he's not on screen a lot. But when he is, he is a genuine human being who is trying to help his older younger brother, <laughs> which is a confusing thing to deal with. But some of the little character things that they gave him is... When he's staying with David in the hospital, David is sleeping, and David wakes up and tells him about a dream, but uh, the younger brother is reading a medical journal. So clearly, he's his life has been about learning medicine, I assume, 
to help people or trying to figure out how you help kids that have gone missing or what else. Basically, his life is about helping people like David. The other really neat thing they do later in the film is David goes to this government facility that we will get to and calls home. Uh, and we see a shot of the family getting the phone call. Uh, his younger brother is outside, and he has taught the dog how to play frisbee. He has achieved the goal that David had set out to do before he went missing, which I, is just... I was going to say oh, that, but you brought it up first, so... <laughs> yeah, it's just... It's such a good small moment in this film. And, I mean, you, yeah, like it's a small moment. They don't really dwell on it at all. You just see him throwing the frisbee and the dog catches it. And that's all you need to know, but you catch on pretty quickly because you had that whole scene at the beginning that was all about it. And I think also just the fact that how they used to butt heads so much, again, just because they're sibling, I think as kids mature, they mostly will get along with each other, even if they've fought a lot as kids, some of them. And, yeah. <laughs> and it's just to, to see how he has come around and is now the caretaker for this guy who he used to fight with all the time. Yeah, the other really good emotional moment here at the hospital is uh, after David goes for the cops, they take him to the hospital just to get checked out. They don't understand what's going on. They want to see if medical science can explain anything to them. And they tell David that he's going to have to stay the night. And he is very frightened because he doesn't know what's going on, doesn't want to be left alone. And his mom tells you, his mom says to him, oh, don't worry. We're not going to leave you alone again. One of us is going to be here the entire time. And just like that mom comforting her son when he is scared just like oh i really connected with it i felt the emotions of david in this moment and the relief of having an adult there who also doesn't know what's going on but is going to take care of him and i think that that's also a very good point because you know the adults are just as confused as he is but they're not going to just leave it up to the medical professionals to figure this out and tell us what's wrong with this kid or where did he come from or where has he been. They're going to be there the whole time to be supportive of their child. Yeah, I, I love how the parents never once question that David is their kid. There's plenty of reasons for them to do so. One, their David would be 20 years old and this kid is still 12. Two, if we accept that the parents understand aliens are involved, maybe <laughs> this is an alien clone. Maybe it's not really their son. But Although, I guess at the point that they're in the hospital, they don't know that yet. Because, sure. So, I guess we didn't really talk about that oh, right. so much yet. It's aliens. At, aliens at, did this. At, so, the day that... David wakes up in the ravine and is mm -hmm. finding out that his family is no longer at his house. There is also seen a strange craft flying through the, sp the sky that crashes somewhere. And the government, this government, is it? I don't know if it's whoever it is, the agency uh, that goes out there. Cause so it's, it's NASA. NASA. David but, gets a NASA but, hat. Yeah, but it, it could be any government agency. But yes, they they go find this craft that has crashed or somehow it's incapacitated. But 
it won't open its doors for them. They can't figure out how to get into it. So they're like, well, let's transport it to some facility where we can study it and figure out what's going on. And they, <laughs> I forget, they, they, they can't figure out how they're going to move it until they walk towards it and it kind of moves on its own almost. <laughs> it was oh, like... I love the practical effects on this ship. Like the way that they established that this is a floating craft and you can just push it. And it'll float along, and then later they attach it to a truck where clearly uh, they they throw a tarp out over it to hide it. They strap it down, uh, and they transport it, but there's a clear um, distance between the bed of the truck and the ship. Now, the practical effect must be that the, the things that are supposed to be strapping it down are actually supporting it, uh, but it's just a really nice effect of... A practical effect showing that this is a flying ship. Um, it's just really well done. Even though it's it, so that's the what it's. Well, you find out later that it hit power lines on its while it right. was flying, and that's the problem. But it is still able to fly under its own power. The only thing that the power lines did to it was scrambled the navigational maps, so it doesn't know where it's going. Which uh, is the first point here, where David is the luckiest kid on earth. So. <laughs> Later, or he talks to the ship. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Uh, because later, he talks to the ship. We've already kind of established he gets into the ship. Uh, and the ship tells him that they're gathering specimens from a lot of planets. Uh, and most, they drop off the moment that they took them. So there's no discontinuity in their lives. Uh, but for David, they found that human beings cannot travel back through time. Their frame is too weak, there's too much risk, and so for his safety, they dropped him off in as soon as the trip could take, yeah. given relativity, which happens to be eight years. We can get into that a little bit later. <laughs> um, but the ship was just going to leave him there and fly off. Though the ship, instead of flying directly into the sky decides to travel laterally across the planet, happens to hit power lines, which happens to ruin the navigation system, so the ship can't leave. So that's why so, David is lucky, because the ship would have left him there, but got in an accident, and so it has to stay on Earth. Which is another interesting thing, because if the ship hadn't gotten an accident and left, he would still have all the information. So, yeah. And I don't know if they explained why they... I mean, they were collecting all these specimens to study them, whatever. But what for some reason, humans, they decided, oh, well, you humans only use 10% of your brain. Uh, so that we old chestnut. We decided to store all of this other information inside of your brain. So the reason that they needed David was because it, he had these navigational charts that had gotten fried by the power lines in the ship. And so the only way it could complete its mission and return all these other aliens back to their home planets is if David was there with his navigational charts in his brain. So this is around the point where the film started to lose me. Uh, <laughs> just because they... After doing all these medical tests, they decide to sit David down with a therapist and listen to a polygraph just to get his side of the story, try to determine what has happened to him, try to figure out why he's so young, even though eight years has passed. Uh, and they hook him into all these electronics. They start going through the night trying to get David to remember what's happened, which is very easy for him because for him it was just the previous day. Um... But as soon as he starts to talk about the ravine that he fell in, his mind starts communicating with computers. 
because you know that's how computers work. <laughs> uh, and they they display on the polygraph screens that the the doctors are watching, like a a blueprint of the ship that they had found in the desert. And this gets transported to NASA somehow, and so NASA starts being interested in David. It starts losing me because I. I know a little bit about computers. <gasps> uh, I know. And there is no way <laughs> that this subconscious navigational data could talk to a computer and start displaying information in a way that humans could understand. Like, these, the amount of things it would have to do to the computer to show the image that they see is ridiculous. Like, why would it work with this computer that maybe is a Windows? Would it work the same with a, a Mac or a Linux computer? Who knows? Was Linux around? I don't know. In 86? Maybe. Possibly, yeah. Um, so, I, yeah. I mean, I tend to, where, where I think you like to analyze all of these things in yeah. the movies, I tend to watch a movie just to be entertained, and I'm like, <laughs> oh, this is interesting, but I, I, and I understand that, like, I'm like, well, yeah, it's not realistic, but it's still fun to watch it as an idea for the plot device for the film. Yes, exactly. It's Hollywood shorthand. They needed NASA to be involved in David's life somehow, it's an an okay explanation by people who don't understand computers. Yeah. <laughs> so, and at this point, this is when the random NASA people show up at David's house and they're like, yeah. hey, we're going to take your son and we just want to study him a little bit and, and we'll only have him for a weekend or something and make sure he's okay with – but we're going to – and they make up these stories to the parents to tell them why it's okay, why we, we're just going to study him, make sure everything's fine, see what's going on with him. And you can tell something is shady about it right from the beginning. But mm-hmm. – <laughs> but yeah. Because initially the parents refuse, and I love the parents in that moment where they're like, no, our son, who we just got back after waiting eight years, is not going to become your guinea pig for you to do tests on. He's going to come home and we're going to celebrate his return and love him for the rest of his life. You can't have him. And they turn to leave, and then the doctor, I think his name is Faraday, guilt trip the child david into well i guess if you don't come to us you'll never learn what's going on or why you've been gone uh i guess if that's fine with you never knowing for the rest of your life go ahead home i guess (laughs) and it's just like you're you're mentally manipulating a child in order to get the information that you want every scientist at this base is horribly unethical uh and this is just the first instance which so again this is why i just kind of described it as this secretive government agency It, it all the signs say nasa but i feel like if you're actual nasa you would not be so I don't I I cannot think of the right word but you know like so 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 cavalier so unethical yeah unethical I guess is the closest I yeah I it just yeah if you're a scientist you have to publish things in journals people review your work and part of what they check for is did you follow all of the rules that our scientific community has established as to the proper way to do science and I gotta tell you, 
This is not the proper way to do science. <laughs> Lock a kid in a room under surveillance. And... Yeah, exactly. So, like, we, we can get to that. David uh, just decides to go with them after being manipulated. And they take him to this facility. Why, why they didn't make the deal that a parent, a parent supervisor could always be with David is beyond me. But they put him in this room and David immediately clocks the the uh, the two sided mirror that they're <laughs> going to be watching him from, uh, and says, "Well, I've got a TV, but you said I could call my parents. Where's my phone?" Faraday's like, "Well, why don't we do that together tomorrow? You can just spend the night in this observation room." Uh, and then he leaves and he locks the door. The other thing that I noticed throughout this entire film. David's supposed to be there for two days, but they don't give him a change of clothes throughout that entire period. Like, they provide him with toys, they provide him with entertainment to try to placate him, but, like, they don't provide him with basic human decency. And, well, I mean, they do give him a curtain so he can cover up, which is interesting because, hey, this is a mirror, we're not watching you, but then we'll give you a curtain to cover up the mirror when you're changing clothes or whatever you need to do. So there is a curtain there, that which will come up later, but <laughs> he's able to have a little bit of privacy even though he's locked in a room by himself. And then this is where... I want to call her a nurse, but she's not really a nurse. I don't know why she's yeah. there. So, uh, for our listeners, this is probably the most famous person in this film mm. because it is a very young Sarah Jessica Parker, who I'm very confused on what her role is at this facility, why yeah. she's allowed to interact with David. Did she, she bring seems... him medicine or, no. or food or so, something? Yes, she brought him food. So what her role seems to be is a young intern who's in charge of delivering food to people. And she does this with a robot because it's NASA. Uh, though this <laughs> is the only robot we see at the facility who he's a glorified food tray. Which, like, again, why, why would they need her if he's the one carrying the food around? Excellent question. Why would they let her interact with David for such a long period without monitoring the sound in the room? At one point, they have a secret conversation because they're whispering to each other where the mirror can't see them. Like, <laughs> if, you're, if your goal is to monitor this room, you should have microphones everywhere. And you shouldn't let these people who aren't informed on who David is and why he needs to be held captive interact with him. Well, that's a, because like one of the first thing he's talking about, why can't I get this show on TV? And she's like, oh, that show hasn't been on in a long time. And she doesn't understand why he's looking for it. Uh, which I don't know the air dates of Starsky and Hutch to see <laughs> if that's actually an air date it wouldn't be on. But like when they gave him a TV, why not give him like VHS tapes of the shows of that era to make him feel more at home? It's just another way that the scientists are inconsiderate. I mean, that didn't work for Captain America, but... Mm, that's true. He did. <laughs> well, he is a super soldier. This guy is 12 years old. True. I think we might be able to fool him. Uh, so, um, we can talk about the, the test that the scientists do on them. Uh, or do on David, rather. Where they, they strap him in with something to monitor his brain. And they start asking David some questions, like... 
where were you? Uh, how long was your trip? Why have you been gone eight years? And David doesn't know any of this. He is just trying to keep telling them, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Why do you keep asking me questions? But his subconscious is where they stored all this navigational information. And because of the wires on his brain, the answers to their questions start appearing on the screen. So they're getting the information that they want. The, the star charts of where he traveled, why he was gone for so long. But in no way are they comforting David whatsoever. Like, why, if they're, if they're such good scientists... Didn't they do like they did in the polygraph, where the screens with all the answers are in a different room than David, so they don't freak him out? Well, did we ever establish that they're such good scientists? They're supposed <laughs> to be. They're supposed to be these super scientists that are supposed to now, uncover the other alien thing, technology. If your whole life is science, and that's all you're focused on, do you think that they're really too concerned with emotional aspects of a child well that's the thing because they are treating david like a lab rat where there's no emotional connection whatsoever but he's a human being there have always been rules in place of doing science on human beings and it's vastly different than doing science <laughs> on guinea pigs what, and what's interesting is then they're si they, they, they keep yelling questions at him and they just stare at the computer instead of actually talking to him because he keeps saying, I don't know, why does it say that? I don't understand where that answer is coming from. Mm -hmm. So during this scene, they find out that he has traveled uh, 560 light years in 2.2 hours. And I have to give them credit because there is the theory of relativity where if you travel faster than the speed of light, Time moves much slower for you than it does for everything surrounding you. And so the trip only took David 2.2 hours. So round trip, it's about four and a half hours, uh, which translates to eight years when you're moving at the speed of light. Now, I don't know all the, the science or the formula, but I know the theory is correct. Maybe the time works out. Uh, but it does seem like the scientists are using that same principle. It's like, well, we'll keep you for 48 hours, but to your to your family, it'll seem like 85 years. <laughs> yeah, and again, yeah, they, they told the parents, oh, it'll be 48 hours or less or something like that. And then after they do these tests and they're getting the answers that they want, he goes back to his little secluded room and Nurse Carolyn comes around again. And while he's talking to her, she tells him, oh, are you sure you're leaving tomorrow? Because uh -huh. I heard them talking. They, I saw the schedule for next week and you're on it every day of the week or something. Now, why the hell would this lowly intern <laughs> know that information? Yep. <laughs> and why would she not know that David, well, yeah, why would she not know that David is important and needs to remain here regardless of what David says? And if she knows that, why would she tell him? Because she should know that that's top secret stuff then. So what I thought was going on here is a much uh, more interesting plot device than what's actually going on here. Because what I thought is that the government officials found the youngest person at the facility to talk to David so that David would feel comfortable. I thought Sarah Jessica Parker was on the side of the scientists, but only acting like a young kid so that they could get more information out of David. 
this is not what's going on at all. <laughs> she is genuinely a, a a little bit naive girl working at a scientific facility who is on the side of David and eventually helps him escape a bit. Well, I don't think she really helps. Oh, maybe she doesn't. Yeah, because I the, she I think that the spaceship is the one that helps him escape. And, you're right, and she she does agree. When they have their whisper conversation, mm-hmm. she agrees to go talk to his parents and tell them what's going on so that they, they can try to come save him. And it's at this point that the NASA people, while, while she leaves to go talk to them, the little mm-hmm. food cart robot shows up at his room and he's hearing voices in his head telling him right. to get inside the food robot and escape to go. And he doesn't know where he's going. He right. just knows we should he's establish to get that away. since his return, David has been re- receiving mental messages from the ship that they captured. But he doesn't. He doesn't know what he doesn't from. know it's from the ship. But he knows he's getting information or like some signals from something, something right. otherworldly. Uh, and so this food robot shows up, and. David's like, okay, I guess I'll put a shirt on. I don't know why they have a shirtless child in this movie at all. Uh, (laughs) But he puts the same shirt on that he had on the previous day and climbs into this food robot. And then apparently this food robot has the most access on the facility because nobody questions its presence anywhere in the facility. And it's not like there's a lot of these food robots around. This is seems to be the only one at this government facility. And the best part is when it pulls up to a secure building and the guy just, oh, here you are. And he pushes the button and opens the big locked door for them to the hangar with the spaceship. The, the best part for me is they've passed a security dog who oh, apparently, yeah. like every other day, must have not barked at this thing, but today it's barking at this thing because it has a human in it. And the owner of the dog or the trainer or whatever is just like, no, that food's not for you, (laughs) silly guard dog, let's go. It's just, there are a lot of examples at how this government facility has the worst guard. Immediately after this, David gets out of this food cart and starts wandering around this most secure building where they have the alien spacecraft and he just wanders and he gets instructions from the ship of how to find it he walks into this room that's being monitored by cameras but we we go to the guards and they're like playing cards or they're on their lunch break and so nobody is watching the cameras now I grant that these guards would get bored and maybe take a little leeway if they're forced to watch a static ship for, say, a month on end. But the ship has been here, I'd say, less than a week. These guards should be on point, should be watching as closely as possible to see what's going on. The other thing I don't buy is they have cameras everywhere. They don't have motion sensors in this very (laughs) secure room. Maybe it was too early for motion sensors in the 80s. We had infrared technology. That's all it takes. (laughs) Um, Well, and this is the point where not only, you know, you're figuring out what the voices in his head are leading him to, but then as he walks around the spaceship and looks at it, it opens up for him and creates a little staircase 
which none of the scientists have been able to figure out how to get into this thing, and it wouldn't allow them access, and then this kid walks in, and it just opens right up for him. Yeah, one of the messages David got was that the the ship was getting hurt or somebody was getting hurt, and it was the, the scientists couldn't get into the thing because the way it's manufactured, it doesn't have any seams, doesn't have any weak points. And so they were trying to use blow torches and buzz saws and everything that humans have made to try to break into the ship, uh, but couldn't break through the skin. And now David walks in and through some terrible CGI, uh, <laughs> the back of the ship melts off into stairs so he can climb into the thing. I was wondering if you were going to get to the special effects. Oh boy. <laughs> For a film that has great practical effects, the the CGI of like the ship warping itself or like the back of it opening and melting into stairs is just... Oh, it's very early stage Yes, CGI. I mean, now for the day, it was probably pretty good, but watching sure. it now, you can definitely, it, it's rough. Yeah, but like, there's so little of it in the film, I can almost give it a pass. Yeah. The thing that, the thing that ticked me off in this, this scene in particular, is once the stairs appear, David takes a good 15 minutes to climb into the ship. <laughs> like, he goes up one step, another step, sticks his head into the craft, doesn't decide to go fully into the craft just yet, wants to look around it a bit, and like... Don't you... Well, but yeah, but you would be hesitant to go into some random ship that you've never seen before. But David is trying to escape. He has no sense of the danger that he is in, where he's in this very secure facility. There are cameras on him at this very moment. He has no sense of urgency whatsoever. Uh, my notes were less about what David was experiencing. Maybe he's doing what you would do in that situation. But as an audience member, what this hesitation tells me visually is that David's going to get caught. And, like, because he's taking so long and giving the guards so much chance to catch him, the back of my brain, the tension is building. It's like, oh, God, he's going to get caught. He's got to get caught. He's got to get point? caught. Because then they do they do find him, and the, the security people see him on the camera and call in everybody else who shows up. And they do see him in the ship, and then he closes the door. Yes, but in my in my notes, I was like, David, you stupid idiot. If the guards catch you, I'm going to kill you. You had every chance in the world to escape. If you get caught here right now, oh my God, child. Uh, is that that's word for word what's in your notes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's more about my reaction to the scene than I guess what's going on in the scene. I don't know. I, I think if it was... I think if you've been through what he has been through for the last two days and have no idea what's going on and then you have voices in your head and you are sneaking around this facility and a ship randomly opens up for you in this weird way that you've never seen before because it's not Earth technology, I don't Seems know that fine. you would just run right into it. I think I would be curious enough to go into the ship. And maybe, like, when I got to the top step, maybe the ship would close behind me unexpectedly. But, like... And then you're trapped forever. Yeah, I want to hide myself from the guards, which he eventually does, because the guards notice the ladder uh, after it being open for a good, let's say, 20 minutes. <laughs> and they hit the red alert, they alert everyone, they charge in with guns and 
Faraday would... Because they want to shoot the 12-year-old kid for some reason. Absolutely. And, like, Faraday is there because apparently he's in charge of security as well at this facility. And he's like, David, don't go in the ship. Come to me, David. You know, the person who's giving you no comfort whatsoever the past couple of days. Come to me, child. It's going to be okay. <laughs> and this is where David finally gets into the ship, and it, it closes up behind him. No, did it? I I think he talked to the robot guy before this. That's true. And he does sit down and talk to him, and, like, I, I it's really interesting like because the, AI the robot is, well, the, yeah, AI, whatever the thing is. It's the pilot of the ship, basically, or it is the ship, pretty much. But it's still taking orders from the human child because it doesn't close the door until David tells it to. That's right. And it can't, it doesn't know, it doesn't fly away or try to escape until David tells it to. Right. Because my interpretation of that, and granted, the ship should have been in charge of, like, the landing gear and the ladder or whatever. Uh, but, like, the ship doesn't know where to go without David. David is, quote-unquote, the navigator, the titular navigator of this film, even though he doesn't know where he's going and that <laughs> everything in his brain is merely subconscious. Uh, but, like, the ship has no idea where to go, doesn't have a flight plan without David. So, like, that that I kind of get. So David gets scared, tells the ship, bring up the landing gear, the guards open fire, because, of course, they do, and they're terrible at their jobs. <laughs> Uh, and David escapes the facility using a lightning gun, which we never see again, to open a door. Well, they don't have and a then, reason to unlock a door with a lightning gun ever again. Right. <laughs> uh, and then for some reason, I forget where the number comes from, but David wants to get 20 miles away, like very specific I, that did, number. I don't know if he ever said that number, did he? He I just says go know. away or I want to get far away. And so that's true. It, I don't know. Something. But and the ship flies straight up into the atmosphere. So clearly the ship is capable of just taking off vertically. Uh, don't know why it hit the power lines in the first place. Uh, but David flies up, and this is the other part to take umbrage with this film, because the physics of what's going on in well, the ship yes. are inconsistent. Yes. Because <laughs> when they, they fly up, uh, basically t 20 miles in like two seconds max... David is being shoved down into the seat. Uh, and then when they stop, suddenly David is flung up into the ceiling. Whereas like, okay, so the ship has no way to counteract the force of motion. But then later in the film, we never see that again. David flies through time at one point, And like <laughs> this has no repercussions on his body whatsoever. Well... And if you fly 20 miles straight up, I think you might not have gravity anyway at that point. Uh, so it's it's not the gravity of the planet. You would have gravity of right, the right. force of the ship. Right, right, you would float up, but you wouldn't have fallen back down afterwards. Let's see. Yeah, maybe you're right, because the ship in atmosphere did have gravity. He fell back to the sea. I'll, I'll see the point. Uh, whatever. <laughs> it's, so anyway, he gets back to Earth um, and decides... He tells the ship, well, what I meant was fly... 20 miles away horizontally and the ship's like oh of course uh so it flies back to earth and then goes into uh ferrari mode to go through the atmosphere and flies off so now they're 20 miles away from the base like east instead of just straight up so 
I really like the AI here as opposed to what it becomes later <laughs> in the film. Yes. <laughs> uh, because the AI does seem alien in nature. It doesn't quite understand human uh, innuendos or what he means by what he says, even though it does understand English. And so, like a computer, it can take the inputs that a human is giving it, but it might misinterpret what the human is saying. Uh, and so, I think it's a really nice dynamic between the AI here and a young child, uh, because they are two completely different people trying to communicate to each other. There's a really great dynamic in that. And so, which we might get to later, the the voice of the AI. Well. Which, at this point, is like this low robotic voice. Like, you know, I am an alien, I will do what you tell me, blah, blah, blah. And it's just, if, if, if David says something, he says, compliance, and then he just, and then the ship just flies wherever he tells it to. But it's just this, it's just a robotic kind of deeper voice. Later on, I think it's after their right. mind you, meld. You can, you can go ahead and explain why it changes. I think we're close enough to that. Well, so as I said in the synopsis, eventually they're trying to get the navigational maps from David's brain. So they have like a, in the ship, there's a thing that it puts on his head to scan his brain and suck out the maps and send them to the ship again and somehow it takes out some of the human consciousness from him and <laughs> and takes on a human personality instead of just being a alien robot right and that's where the dynamic falls apart for me because while it was very interesting to watch this very literal very robotic being who's in charge of this very powerful ship to try to communicate with a young child who maybe doesn't always say exactly what he or he doesn't always say things in the way the computer understands mm. now we've got a ship acting like a child and has all the navigation and if you've got a ship acting like a child david becomes almost irrelevant and yeah, it was definitely a big shift for the ship personality uh -huh. <laughs> because now he's making weird jokes and laughing at himself. And or he I, gets really petty at one point as David's like trying to control where he's flying. And he's like, "Well, if you want to fly the ship, yeah. just go ahead." And what was interesting to me is. I didn't realize until this point, I started here and I was like, you know, that reminds me a lot of this person. Uh-huh. And then I, so I had to go look it up and I was like, huh, I would not have guessed that from the beginning part of the voice. So I, I think it was heavily me it was, altered, but. For me, it was the laugh. Yes. And I thought, I thought the laugh was a terrible impersonation. Right. <laughs> of the guy who actually performs the role. Yep. So we've been skirting around it. Why don't you tell our audience who the voice well, of this AI is? I'm trying to remember because I looked it up, but it, so it was not in the credits at the end of the movie the same way it's listed online. Oh, interesting. But anyway, so the person who voiced the AI of the ship is Paul Rubens, better mm -hmm. known as Pee Wee Herman. Exactly. And so at a, a, 
a lot of points at this movie, the ship is doing the classic Pee Wee Herman laugh. And it's just, it's so jarring knowing that laugh from another person, yep. like from another character, and why the AI of the ship would be acting like that guy. I don't... It, for me, what what I interpreted it as, not knowing that it was Paul Rubens doing it, was that David was a fan of Pee Wee Herman, and the ship just took Pee Wee Herman out of his brain and assumed this character that David would be familiar with. Now, I don't know if the time like, checks out where David would be aware of Pee Wee Herman in his childhood. Credited as Paul Mall. M-A-L-L. Oh, <laughs> was he going for the cigarettes? I, I, <laughs> I don't know, but... That's so strange. I guess that's true. This movie did come out a year after Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Okay. So, so like, maybe he... There's There's been a few cases where uh, actors don't want to be credited. Or they'll be credited by a different name so that it doesn't... Um, appear in the same sh uh, sheet as, like, the things that they're famous for. Um, which, well, well, uh, I don't want to get into my pitch games. <laughs> Maybe I'll reveal this later. Um, or, like, if they're... Uh, so I guess Paul Rubens would be credited this way so that people searching for Paul Rubens would find Pee Wee Herman and not this movie where he's only a side character. Although he still had a pretty good-sized role in this movie. I mean, the, by number of lines that the ship has. But. Yeah, it's a big role. I mean, he's a giant ship. Mm -hmm. bow, 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 bow. Uh, so you mentioned it goes into Ferrari mode. I guess we didn't talk about that a lot. When it goes into light speed or whatever, like the whole shape of the ship changes and it almost becomes transparent to a point like it has this is where the weird cgi comes in because like it has a shape but it kind of is like a chameleon where it blends into the surrounding so you can see the shape but it's the colors of all of the things around it it's kind of weird so i think it was just highly reflective yeah. as opposed to camouflage the thing that i liked is it took another principle an actual physics principle here and applied it to the ship because when the ship is flying through space or time or whatever uh it looks like kind of like a cocoon uh so kind of rounded edges big in the middle and then when it's flying through earth's atmosphere uh it goes and it becomes much more streamlined much more aerodynamic so it can achieve the same speeds in earth's atmosphere i thought like that was a really nice touch where if you're flying through space, you don't need your ship to look like an X-Wing. <laughs> you just, you it can look like anything because there's no aerodynamics in space. But if you're flying through atmosphere, it should look different because there's forces working against you. But, and I think the interior design of the ship I kind of liked... So yeah. when when he first, I mean, it's all again this mirrored reflective surface everywhere Very he looks. Very chrome. But as he walks in, there's nothing there. It's just a flat floor and then the curved top of the thing. But as when he walks up to the front and he's looking into the like robot face or whatever he's looking at, the floor raises up in the shape of a chair like behind him and he falls into it because he didn't even see that it was happening. So it's interesting how it's able to just shift its shape however it wants to suit the situation. Yeah, I think um, had the CGI 
been better. This transformation may have been CGI. And I think that was the intent where like the sh- the chair does come up from the floor and practically it meant that the chair was in the floor on a riser, a trap door opens and it rises from the floor. But I think in the story of this film, it's made of the same things that are on the outside. And so the ship just forms a chair out of the metal, the magical metal that it's made of. The other thing I really like about the design of this ship is the alien language that is printed over everything because it is incomprehensible and it should be. An alien language should not be immediately understood by human beings. That would be ridiculous if our cultures got developed light years apart. The other, so this doesn't quite work with like the ship controls. Like, why would the ship be controlled with joysticks in the same way that yeah. a human ship would be controlled. Cause at one point David is flying the ship on its own it's also, because the ship it's is not being a jerk. Exactly joysticks. He has, cause it's two things. It's kind right. Of- oh, right. Cause it is uh, like these glowing balls that yeah. David kind of has to DJ uh, in order to fly the thing. That's fair. But so I don't remember what exactly happened. At some point, he's like, oh, well, we need to go back to where we came from. I need to go home. Right. And it flies the wrong direction somehow. And he ends up like in Egypt or something. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Your your memory of this is pretty bad. I know. Uh, You are way off geographically of where they end up. However, he ends up everywhere before the end of the movie. Yeah, it's probably true. But how it happens, it's it's after the brain scan. So um, the ship gets all this astronomical, astronomical <laughs> um, space data, these star charts of how it can fly back to its home planet. However, David's brain and even the information they've put into its brain has no knowledge of Earth geography. And so... David is trying to get home. That's been his entire goal since he left the the facility. He's just trying to get back to his parents to be a normal kid. And so he's like, well, we got to get home. Can you get me home? And the ship's like, yes, I can. I got this. And they end up in Japan. Was that the first one? Because I, I think they end up in the UK at some point, too. So Do they? I thought it was just Japan, and then they they try to get back to Florida. I, I thought don't know. Japan was, they could I thought go they went supplies. all the way around and came back, and then they ended up in San Francisco, and he said, oh, well, if we go down south and then go this way, we'll end up in Florida. Okay, I do remember San Francisco, but that would, hmm, it makes more sense to fly to San Francisco from Japan than all the way around, because you would cross Florida to get to San Francisco. Right. I think they went east somehow okay. to start off ah, and they got they went all the way around the other way i see what you're saying that's possible the film does not make this clear <laughs> but so this this is the part of the film that you skipped in your 60 second yep. synopsis because it was not important reason <laughs> well one it's a lot of words and two a lot of this travel isn't important like david's going all over the earth trying to find his way home to Florida, and he doesn't know Earth geography, because of course he doesn't, because he's 12. He also doesn't know highways, because he's never driven before. Like, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, 
and he's working with the ship that only understands things outside of Earth. My uh, my notes, I put, this ship is a lot like Google Maps, which is very good at getting you long distances, but not so great at getting you exactly where you need to be. Google Maps has dropped me off a lot. Like It has dropped me off where I'm literally within 30 feet of the building where I need to go, but I don't know what that building looks like. And so I wander around trying to find the thing for a while. Yeah, that is kind of what happens. So he does, somehow he ends up, where did, oh, they stopped at a gas station. They do, which is a brilliant scene that I love. Yes. Because uh, they stop at the gas station, the stairs open up, and David goes to, uh, he asks for money from this, with, like this Jimbo-esque character, this very large man <laughs> who's in charge of the Southern Florida gas station, uh, for money so he can go to the phone booth and call his parents. I don't know how David knows his home phone number or remembers the address of where his parents live to look it up maybe he looked by at name in the yellow pages Who but he, knows? he doesn't know their address because he had to call his brother and said you need to give me a signal to get home because i don't know where it is right yeah i forgot about but phone books i do but people know we you, you know before cell phones carl we actually had to remember people's phone numbers <laughs> but also you don't get to maintain your phone number when you switch yeah. addresses his parents are at a different house they have a different phone number that david would not have time to learn was my point hmm. i'm aware that we used to have phone numbers we used to remember sure. i still remember i still remember my childhood phone number which hasn't been useful for me in like 20 years yep so i i understand and so my point was how would david know his new phone number but then i remembered oh right there's a phone book you can look people up by name and then find their number mm-hmm. that's that's how phones work uh or used to work used to work (laughs) so the thing i love about this scene is while david is on the phone with his brother uh discussing like you need to give me a sign so that i know where to fly to get home this other family pulls up in a minivan (laughs) yes they see this uh this gas station attendant just standing amazed at what he has just seen, like totally catatonic. And the dad goes over to him and tries to have a conversation, but can't get anything out of the guy and just figures, well, I guess that's just what this guy is. Well, and the best part, he, he turns around and sees the spaceship and he says, oh, that's really good. That, then he thinks it's like a tourist attraction. A gas station. Yes, exactly. An uh, off the road attraction. And so his family goes up next to the thing and starts taking photos of it. <laughs> and he's like, kids, don't climb inside that thing. It's not going to be safe. Now come on back <laughs> down. And I have to believe the dad can see that the steps are hanging in midair with nothing to support them. And maybe he just thinks it's some sort of movie magic or whatever. It's just like, wow, that's a really good effect. I can't even see how they're supported. But I love uh, when David is done with his phone call, he uh, buys a few maps and he gets back up into the thing and the ship flies off and the family is just like, what? And now the dad is as catatonic as the gas station attendant was. And there's a great line here where the gas station attendant turns to the guy and says, he said he needed to phone home. 
<laughs> which is just it's a great et reference for all of the references that this film does this one was unexpected and i really enjoyed it yep <laughs> it was one of the best parts i think of the movie um and all right so now david it, is following highways looking for yes. Jeff's signal and i think he, he he was kind of following the coast at some point because he knew yeah. that they were along the coast somewhere right well, his old house would have been, yeah. certainly. Um, and then, so, what his brother... Well, I don't remember what his brother's name Jeff. Jeff. His brother's name what is Jeff. Bro- what his brother does is, earlier in the movie, which we didn't really cover, they established that the family has kept his room... Now, again, now, now, now I'm confused about this. The parents have kept his room exactly as he left it because they were always afraid that or whatever they thought he was going to come back except they're in a new house so i don't know how that works the room is a different size certainly so anyway (laughs) they he goes into david's room and finds the box of fireworks that david had been admiring earlier in the film because it was the fourth of july and takes the fireworks up onto the roof of their house to launch them into the sky as a signal of how to get home. Which is a really nice touch, because most of these fireworks don't work. Because <laughs> of course they don't, because they're eight-year-year-old year, eight fireworks. Yes. Which is a weird way to say it, but I got through it. Because <laughs> like the first two he lights off, they just like, they pitter out and they fly off to the side, Presumably exploding on the ground nearby. (laughs) Hopefully not exploding at all, but... Because, yeah, David, at this point, is flying his ship in the dark around a city and doesn't know how he's going to get home. But then the fireworks start going off, and he sees the reflection of these fireworks in the windows of a building, uh, and then turns the craft, sees the fireworks, like, yes, that's the side, and he flies off to it. So, first of all... Uh Uh-huh. I don't know why you immediately assume that fireworks are the sign, but I guess if nothing, sure. I mean, that's the only, I don't know how else they would have made the signal to him, really. They weren't going to shoot laser beams into the sky. <laughs> so somewhere along the line here, the NASA peoples had discovered, I think, oh, they found out that Nurse Carolyn lady had gone to talk to his parents. Not a nurse, but okay, go well, on. Well, that's what I'm going to call her. Right. And, <laughs> and so they sent people to the parents' house to be like, hey, you need to stay home for your own safety or whatever, because they had seen on the news that David got kidnapped by a spacecraft or something. So so now they had, now that the, the people were questioning the Carolyn lady and found out somehow, somehow they found out that he was coming back home again. I don't know Mm -hmm. why, how that got triggered. They just knew that he was going to be headed home. So they all show up at his house right as the fireworks are going off. So when David gets home, he sees fire trucks and all kinds of government vehicles and people around the house. And he says, Oh, well we can't land here. Look at all these people. They're not supposed to be here. Right. Which it makes the uh, his entire flight, this big journey that he's been going on, kind of pointless. Because at the point where he gets home, he sees, well, Faraday has already made it here. There's big government trucks. Uh, granted, I see my family near the house where I wanted to go. But if I stay here, I'm. he knows what his future is going to be. And he's just like, well... I can't stay here. This isn't my home anymore. 
And so he's trying gonna, to get home the whole movie. They're going to just poke and prod me and put me, subject me to a bunch of tests because that's all I am to them now. And so pointing out all the ways David was lucky. One, David was very lucky that his ship happened to be in a place that could see these fireworks from a very, from a city, not knowing where his home actually is. Uh, so David gets home, decides that's not my home anymore. It has been my home for eight years. And he tells the ship, you have to take me back through time. The ship says, that's very, very dangerous. Are you sure? And he's like, I got to take the risk. Let's do it. And the other way David is lucky is he survives mm-hmm. this very risky trip. Now, we skipped over a part, which is important for the very end of this. At one point where he's talking to the alien and they're doing the brain scan or whatever, the computer's prepping for it. The computer opens a, a panel on the ship and shows him all the other specimens that he has to take home. And he keeps telling David, no, 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 don't touch that one. It'll eat your face off. <laughs> no, 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 that one's poisonous. Uh, if it touches you, you'll die immediately. Uh, and that David goes like this little, tiny, almost bat-like creature. Imagine a bat if it didn't have wings or like a very small brown creature and the computer's like yes 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 that one is safe you can you can play with that one for a while uh after i left its planet got destroyed so it's kind of an orphan uh but you just you just go ahead and hold on to that uh it's important because when the the ship travels back through time david wakes up in the ravine again and he goes home and knocks on the door and nobody answers and he's scared that it didn't work. And then he hears from the shoreline his dad calling to him, his, the younger version of his dad, saying, David, where have you been? Come on, buddy, we gotta launch these fireworks. And he goes into the boat with the family that he remembers, the home that he was missing out on. Um, and the only thing that he has to remember his journey, to know that it was a real thing and not a dream, is this little alien creature that he brought with him. And I guess for me, I was, I for some reason, I was thinking he wasn't even going to remember it at all. Like, you know, yeah. it was one of, because he didn't remember anything happening the last time. He just remember, he just woke up after eight years and didn't know where he had been. What I choose to believe is that the ship, uh, either he fell into the ravine and got knocked out, or the ship kept him under sedation. And so David was not conscious for any of the four hours he was gone. Whereas, instead of wiping his memory they just kept him unconscious and filled his brain with navigational data whereas now he is he was conscious for the whole thing there is no memory wipe and so he remembers the journey so i have questions on the repercussions of this time travel because now he knows what's going to happen in the future well yeah david traveled into the future and when you travel into the future the past is set Everything that happens in the past has happened in some interpretations of time travel. And then flying back in time, he goes back to the point he arrived and now the life can proceed with him in it. But he's still going to arrive eight years from now because he was gone for like a week or whatever. And he's a week older. He spent that week somewhere. So David at 12 years old is going to show up while David is 20 years old. And he's going to be there for a week. And I don't know what that looks like. <laughs> uh, I don't, I thought if you go back again, that just 
doesn't because that would be skewed to a separate timeline, right? So so if you do that, if you're if you're now you're back again, it's a different timeline than where he would have been in the other one. So he may not show up. That is a another interpretation of time travel, where every time you go back, you're creating a different but uh, a copy of the universe at that time. If you make changes that proceeds along timeline B, but doesn't affect timeline A, I'm I'm subscribe more to the <laughs> the theory where everything is in timeline A. Everything that happens has happened. And so I choose to believe when David is 20 so years old, he tells us to the lost theory. Yeah. Or like the back to the future. <laughs> Which was theory. also a, a Dr. Faraday, but yeah, true. <laughs> where David at 20 years old has to tell his parents, okay, I'm going to be gone for a week. The child version of me is going to show up. I know this sounds strange, but just like, just take care of him for a week and he'll be gone. Also, there's got to be scientists. Don't tell them anything. I feel like just the fact that he's back there, though, would change because maybe now they won't even move because they won't have to put up the missing posters and all that stuff. And maybe Jeff won't grow into the wholesome person that he became in David's absence. (laughs) So the other note I had is Sir Jessica Parker's role in this film is very important at the beginning of it. She is David's one friend at the scientific facility or whatever. Uh, And then she disappears. Like, the scientists interact with her. I think she's there at the house when David flies his ship there. But, like, she doesn't get to do anything. Uh, Like, she doesn't have her story resolved. And if I was writing this movie... The way that I would have fixed this and the thing that I was expecting to happen in this film was at the beginning of the film, they established that oh, David yep. David is having his <laughs> first crush and his dad is talking to him about how you talk to girls and how you form relationships and whatnot. And I expected Carolyn, the the person he meets in this facility, to be the grown-up version of his crush. I thought about that also, but I right. forgot about it and later at, on. So, I, And at one point, you know, tell David that when she was 12 years old, she had a crush on him, which is why she's being so nice to him now. And then when David goes back in time, just, you know, throw a wave to the young girl while his family goes and launches fireworks. Like, it's a, it's a good way to wrap up the girl's storyline, even though it's a bit part. And this film just kind of leaves that hanging. Yeah, well, like, she does go get his parents, and then she shows up at the facility while he's escaping and flies away. And I think that's the last we see of her, except for the, the, when they're questioning her, I guess. So, I, but yeah, I had thought the same thing. I was like, oh, maybe she's that same girl. She's just older now because she's about the right age, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, I guess since they never came back to it, I had forgotten about it by the time we got to the end. So I didn't even think mm-hmm. of that, but. Yeah. All right. So. That makes sense. I, Would have made sense. <laughs> so the other thing that I kind of realized after watching this film is that. Not only is his flight home with the ship mostly pointless because the goal they're trying to achieve, they just decide to fly back in time, which they could have done Mm -hmm. at any point in the journey. But also, David's entire journey is nearly pointless. The one thing that changes is now he has a new alien pet that his parents may or may not let him keep. um, And he his perspective has changed. Yeah. Like... His entire journey 
doesn't accomplish anything. He gets to go home again. Maybe now his dog won't know how to catch a frisbee. Oh, it certainly doesn't. (laughs) Because Jeff is a much better teacher than David will ever be. So, yeah, I... I had thought that while I was watching it because we got to that part and he and they had mentioned several times throughout the movie about time travel and how, oh, well, we can't do that because you your frail human body would never make it. And I am far superior to you. It doesn't if they had done it right away, the whole movie would have been over. So right. I, and there was pointless. The other thing I think it would have been a really interesting, like Twilight Zone esque ending to this film. And I get that it's a family film. And I don't want questionable endings. They want to wrap up loose threads. But it would have been really interesting to me if when David flew back through time, somehow the time stream messed with him. And so he arrives where he left. But now he's 20 years old. <laughs> and so his young family has to deal with the fact that this much older stranger is here and claims to be their 12-year-old child. That would have been fun. But maybe I enjoy that type of ending more than other people. And this is the type of movie where it's more about the journey that they go on than the the ultimate repercussions about that journey. Uh, which might appeal to members of our audience more than it appeals to me. Well, and I think, like you said, it's a family movie, and I think they're just trying to tie it all up at the end. And it's just like, we need this happy ending. We need him to get back where he's supposed to be. For a while, I thought he was just going to show up back home and live out his life with the old version of the family, because that was the whole point of the movie all the way up until then. And I was like, oh, well, now we're going to go ahead and travel back through time anyway. I was like, oh, okay. It's, oh, God, I hate when science fiction things do this, where it's like, well, there's one thing that we certainly can never do, and that's travel back through time. And, oh, I guess now we'll just travel back through time and solve everything. Like, they establish the rules where we absolutely positively cannot do this, and then they break the rules just like, all right, we'll give it a shot, and I, fingers crossed, I hope it works. And it always does, because it's a movie. Absolutely. Anyway, that's the end of my notes. Let's go on to games. Our first game is the pitch game, a game in which we throw together two or more properties in the form. It's this meets this to describe this film. So I'm going to start us off here describing the flight of the navigator in terms of other things. Uh, We're still doing the guessing thing. And so I'll read the first one, give you a chance to guess, and then let our audience know. All right. So. Since this is a film featuring a child coming in contact with an otherworldly artifact which imbues them with knowledge and ultimately makes them lose touch with society. Featuring characters flying around the world using their newfound abilities. And a property featuring a fancy talking vehicle and a character taking a shadowy flight into a dangerous world where he doesn't exist. <laughs> I don't think this is actually what it is, but your first one made me think of Sword Art Online. Oh, interesting. Okay. Don't know if I'd describe that as otherworldly, given that it takes in the video game. It's a game. video game world. It's a different world. All right, world. fair, fair. <laughs> and they I'll learn to you. fly because in... Actually, I guess it's in the second anyway. Um, 
your other one is about a talking vehicle. It is. Which I wa- I wanted Name to say it was Knight Rider, but that... Came- oh, boy, you got it. Really? <laughs> yes. So I've never actually watched that show, so I don't know what you mean by world where he doesn't exist. But- <laughs> so, the phrase, a shadowy flight into a dangerous world where he doesn't exist, it's taken from the opening line mm-hmm. of Knight Rider. Uh, so I looked this up to write this tagline and found it very interesting. So the story of Knight Rider is... <laughs> A cop gets very injured. A very um, a very wealthy man decides to repair his body like RoboCop. I was going to say, this is um, <laughs> RoboCop. Yeah, yeah. And then make him a part of his own crime-fighting team. Uh, and he gives him the fancy car that helps him out in his way, too. So, but so it's RoboCop, changes... but with a car. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But... He also changes the cop's name, and so now he is living in a world where his former self just doesn't exist anymore. Hmm. So, like, he died and became this other person. Anywho, you may not have seen the, the first one here. Have you seen the movie Chronicle? Nope. All right, so it was Chronicle meets Night Rider. See, this is where we're missing Sarah, because I'm sure these things, Sarah the ones that, that I don't know, she will know, so. I'm pretty sure she would. All right, go ahead and start us off with your first I may have game. to watch that movie someday, though. It's very good. I'm sure you'll get mine right away because they're not very deep cuts, so... Okay. <laughs> uh, because it is a property with an intergalactic time-traveling tra- spaceship with a mind of its own where it oh. only allows specific people on board, an extraterrestrial race with a superiority complex and a fascination with other alien races, and who chooses to travel with a human. Oh. And, okay. <laughs> uh, after traveling through time and meeting his future family, a teen will do whatever it takes to return to the past and be with the parents he knew. Huh. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're gonna get them really easily. Yeah, yeah. So I thought the first one you were talking about was Galaxy Quest. But I'm pretty sure it's Doctor Who. It is. Um, And then I want to say the second one, you were being very specific. And so I'll choose Back to the Future 2. Hooray! (laughs) I I wanted to go with the entire trilogy because there is the whole part. Something that we talked about reminded me of it, but I forget now. But where, where he travels back to his old family and then... It with the with the whole timelines and how all that works out when he gets comes back to the future, but we could call this movie Back to the Past. Yes. Anyway, uh, my second one here. <clears throat> this is a property where an alien orphan gets adopted by an American family. A young man learns about his mysterious past via alien technology and learns how to fly. And. An otherworldly artifact falls to Earth and a government organization confiscates it to learn about its impenetrable nature. Featuring a character breaking into the facility, getting to the artifact thanks to its unsuspecting guards, also a son returning to his rightful place. The second one should be Thor. Uh, Correct. Because I had also debated about that, but did not include it. (laughs) At least we're on the same lines here. Uh, what was, so the first one was what again? Uh, Alien Orphan, Adopted by an American Family. Uh, I wanted to say Mac and Me. Ooh, not an orphan. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, he was by himself. True. Um, I could say the alien's planet got exploded. Uh, he's the last of his kind. That see now that sounds like Doctor Who. Ooh, I could but sing except the theme he's not song. It has a very American distinctive family. theme song uh, written by John Williams. So, hmm, I, I yeah. <laughs> well, I know what that is now. So, all right, great. So, yes, it was <laughs> Superman meets Thor. So you went with the two completely opposite ends of the superhero spectrum there. So. I went with DC meets Marvel. That's correct. <laughs> Trying to join the two. Now, okay, so for my second one, I don't know if you have seen... You probably have, but we'll see. I know you've seen at least one of them, for sure. So, because it's a movie where a human is taken from Earth against his will, travels far across space, and no one believes him when he returns... He easily learns to fly a spaceship and uses it to elude his pursuers. And uh, a movie where a young boy is studied by a secretive government agency after forming a psychic link with an entity from another world. He escapes custody and with the help of the alien creature, he helps the visitor escape and return to its own planet. Alright, I'm pretty sure the second one is E.T. Um, the first one, I, I'm gonna guess a movie I was debating but did not use. Could this be The Last Starfighter? It is. Oh boy. So was it Starfighter meets E.T.? It is. Nice. You win the pitch game, apparently. I have <laughs> all the points! Alright, my last one here. <clears throat> A film where characters come in contact with an alien ship that can shapeshift. A government organization tries to capture and learn from the alien tech. Uh, there's electronic disturbances and a young boy dealing with his first crush. And a film where a character travels through time and sees what happens to the people he cares about, including his brother, without him there. Also, ultimately nothing happens except the main character changes his state of mind. That was a lot of words. Sure. I... You might not have seen the first one, I'll tell you that. Oh, really? Uh, if you have a guess, let's let's hear it. I don't even know about the second. Uh, hmm. uh, give me hints about the first... Not sure, hints, sure. repeat things from the first one. Sure, sure. Uh, first one, um, they come in contact with an alien ship that can shapeshift. Oh, yeah. So my first thought was that it was Star Trek The Next Generation, but <laughs> it is that's not. not a movie. So No. Uh, so this was a J.J. Abrams film that wasn't Star Trek. Uh, it's like kids uh, learning about aliens. Was... Oh, is that that Super 8 movie? It is the Super 8 I movie. I have not seen that one. The other the other J.J. Abrams one I was thinking about with Aliens was Cloverfield, but nothing else seemed to resemble that, <laughs> so... Alright, now I am certain you've seen the second oh, one. Oh, brother. So it's where uh, things happen. And... Yep, they certainly <laughs> do. Um... A, a character travels through time and sees what happens to his family, the people he cares about, without him there. Oh, um, why do I not? I have I have it in my head, but I can't think uh -huh. of it. Tell me about it. Uh, it's where he travels through time and he sees what the family goes through without him there. Give me, give me <laughs> any other information that I did not provide you with. <laughs> 
Well, it's definitely not uh, a Christmas carol. It's not, but it's close. What? Is it a Christmas movie? I would say he travels through time, not through the use of technology, but through some holy magic. He's, uh, f- makes friends with an angel <laughs> named Clarence. See? Oh. <laughs> I told you I had, I, I could think of the movie from that description, but I just don't think of it fast enough. Right. Well, obviously. Right. It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> Correct. It was Super 8 meets It's a Wonderful Life. See, now, I kind of went the route of everything sci-fi, so when you start throwing ah. in other ones, it throws me off, because Christmas movies don't really seem that similar to this one to me, but yeah, I so see where you get from, that from. Right, it's right. Just, for me, it was coming back to a world that existed without you. What happens if you get removed from time? What happens to your family? That was the byline. Yeah, right, and it makes sense. It's just not where my brain goes. I, I get in the sci-fi, and that's all I could think of. <sighs> all right, let's move on to our second game, which is alternate tagline, a word and phrase you would see on the movie poster for the film that describes the theme of the movie, though possibly misses the point. So, Mark, you are going to be reading the actual taglines uh, while I do my fakey-fake terrible ones. Uh, and it's up to our audience <laughs> to decide which tagline they prefer. Your fakey-fake either... ones are probably better than the actual one. <laughs> yeah, either my garbage or Hollywood's garbage. You decide. I think a lot of times ours are better, actually. But Well, yeah, and I think we've gone into it before where... I think when they write the taglines, it's before the entire film is put together. Like, it's for the the advertising of the film. Uh, and so, like, some things might change since the tagline was written. Anywho. So, this, uh, my first one has to do with all the times that I felt like he was very fortuitous uh, in being able to get back to where he started. Uh, so, my first one is... <clears throat> The Flight of the Navigator, a film about the luckiest boy on Earth overcoming astronomical odds. Good. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's still better. So the awesome. first one here, the official one, Flight of the Navigator, come along on the greatest adventure of the summer. Wow. <laughs> All right, my second one. The Flight of the Navigator, a heartwarming tale where ultimately nothing really happens. That sounds very similar to one you did about a different episode. Yes, probably. I mean, it's not two worlds, one family that I definitely <laughs> have used on other things. Uh, all right. Flight of the Navigator, take off on the ultimate fantasy adventure. All right, that could be any film. <laughs> yep. <laughs> all right. And my final terrible one that I freely admit is terrible has to do with the main character being named... David Freeman. <laughs> <clears throat> the Flight of the Navigator. D free go home. I warned you. <laughs> uh, I still think some of my puns in other episodes are worse, but. All right. All right the, uh, so the final, final real, one. real one. David is eight years late for dinner, and the U.S. government wants to know why. But David has an excuse, an absolutely fantastic excuse. All right. <laughs> the final clause in that, if you get rid of the excuse thing, that's actually pretty darn great. Right? I, but it just keeps going forever. And I'm yeah, like, just cut it off. Uh, yeah, I think, I think that one ruined itself, so I'm going to vote for <laughs> I think mine are better. 
I I might agree. Maybe not the last one, but well, sure. But I warned you, and I know it's terrible. Anyway, uh, let's go on to our final game, which is the TV Guide game. A description of the plot of the film you would find at TV Guide or Netflix description, where it accurately describes the plot, though possibly misses the point. So, <clears throat> I'm also going to start us off here. Telling our listeners what happens in Flight of the Navigator. So, this is a film where a young boy is kidnapped and kept away from his family for eight years. When he is finally free, he then willingly gets held captive by unethical scientists and terrible security guards to escape his second capture. He must form an unlikely friendship with his original kidnapper, who needs information only he can provide. Learning nothing from his past, the boy goes on to kidnap an orphan and keep him as a pet, continuing the cycle of violence. Ugh. That went on for a long time. It sure did. I need to clearly establish that like all the violence that this kid goes through and then the violence he exerts on a tiny little creature. It just proves that he go that that violence begets violence. Uh-huh. Actually, it brings up another thing that I had thought of that I never wrote down. So that's interesting. Anyway, <laughs> So, my first one. When a young boy goes missing, his dog finally learns how to catch a frisbee to honor the memory of his former best friend. Oh, oh puppy. <laughs> I figured we had to have one about the dog since Sarah isn't here to do it. Yeah, I forgot about the dog. Alright, um, my next one. A very conceptual film where a small alien species comes upon a boy passed out in a ravine and implants the story of the film into the boy's brain, endearing itself to the boy who then takes the alien home as a treasured pet. <laughs> See, both of yours so far, I had originally thought of putting down something about Stockholm Syndrome and did not. Uh -huh. So <laughs> yours are kind of along the same lines. They sure are. All right. An extraterrestrial babysitter asks a child for directions. <laughs> Pretty great. Uh, my last one. A four-hour tour of the universe goes horribly wrong thanks to the theory of relativity. <laughs> a four-hour tour. I nearly put Gilligan's <laughs> Island in my pitch game. Uh, uh, at least I picked up great. on it. So, <laughs> All right, let's go on to our review scale. We're going to start, of course, with our infamous potato scale. Now, while I pull up the list, because I never prepare this one, Mark, why don't you start us off by telling our audience what is Flight of the Navigator in terms of your relationship with potatoes. So I will say I remember really liking this film as a kid. I, I don't remember exactly what I liked about it. I just remembered that I really liked it. But watching it now, I didn't. <laughs> I, it, it has its moments, but I can't remember exactly what about it so fascinated me when I was younger. We do have two potatoes that might be good for that. Actually, three. And I I think I will go with the potatoes with eyes, which yeah. is that it's spoiled with age. Because I think, as we discussed, the special effects, especially the CGI stuff, the physical effects actually worked really well still. The CGI has not aged very well, and I think that pulls you out of it a little bit at times. 
and you can tell that it was more of a family film directed at children. And I think as a kid, a younger younger child, you may still enjoy this movie, but as an adult, <laughs> it loses some of that excitement. Um, it does have some of its moments, which we also have another potato for, but it just, uh, I think as a child, you would enjoy it more than you would as an adult. Um, just because with some of the things we've discussed, even besides the special effects, it, um, some of the plot points don't necessarily make sense when you start to think about them. <laughs> so normally I try to mix a few potatoes together, but I don't have too many others really that fit this one. So I, I guess I could also go with the potato skins, which is not enough there. Like I said, it has moments, but disappointing overall. So if anything, I would say maybe the potato skins with eyes. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, I wish we had a potato for the way I feel about this film. Because the way I feel about, especially the emotional states of this film, is the beginning of this movie is great. Mm -hmm. It really wrapped me up in it. Like, I really felt for David as a character. And there are some great dynamics between David and the ship. But then the ship scans its brain and those dynamics fall apart. Uh, and the emotional states that I felt in the beginning of the movie don't follow through for the rest of the film. I would say the closest it gets is when David comes home, looks at his family, looks at the government officials that are there, and decides to leave his family because that's not his home anymore. Like, that's a very brief moment at the end of the film that might have the same emotional stakes and emotional impact as the beginning of this film, which has so many of them. So, I... It's not good bad. Um, <laughs> it's... Ah, it's just that it, it has such promise and it doesn't deliver on them. Hmm. See, it's hard on this one. Yeah. I, don't, I had trouble coming up with a number scale as well because... There are some movies that I rated really low or kind of middle, but I can't tell where to put this one in relation to those. So, so Yeah, so I'm going to think more about the potato that I, I want to give it, and maybe I'll retroactively change this one. However, I guess the closest was the one you said, Potato Skins. It has its moments, ultimately disappointing. I would say I will give it a mashed potatoes because... David with his family is truly heartwarming, especially the character development they give to the minor character, Jeff, who is David's brother. Like, the little moments they get him, oh, so good. And the final one that I'll give it is Black Potatoes, because there are some very troubling issues in the way that David is treated by most of the adults in this film. So yeah, I think that's where I land. So it'll be black mashed potatoes with some potato skins thrown in. <laughs> All right. I was wondering so, if you would give it a black potato. I I debated, but yeah, I didn't I didn't want to um, at first, but like it's the closest that comes to it on our scale. And I'm gonna think more about the is there a fry that looks really good, but then you you bite into it and it's not as good as you thought it was gonna be? Or like initially it was great, but it didn't it didn't last. Something like that. 
Hmm. Maybe it's reheated fries. <laughs> where we don't have that on our list yet, do we? <laughs> I know. We don't. Maybe we should do that. Where it started great. In the restaurant, it was great. And then you brought them home and you reheated them. And they're not quite as good. It didn't keep delivering. Anyway, I'll think about that. Let's go on to our second review scale, which is a rewatchability scale on the order of 0 to 10 to tell our audience should they go back and watch this film. Mark, go ahead and start us off. Well... <laughs> Like I said, uh, this one, it was kind of hard for me because I think that some of the movies we have reviewed were not as good, but there are definitely many that are better overall. And again, it could depend on your age range because I still think as a kid, this may be, it may have that uh, fascination of going to space or seeing this alien spaceship that a child can get in and work the ship right away um so as a kid you might enjoy it a lot but as an adult it's not as good and i guess that's more the point of our show is to review it as an adult and see how we feel <laughs> so i still think it's kind of middle of the road um even as a kid it probably wasn't one of my favorites but it would be something that i would watch just for fun i would probably put it maybe a four and a half Wow. Okay, because that is much lower than what I was thinking. Really? I guess, yeah. well, you had those emotional impacts that you really True. liked. And I, I can see where that's coming from. I guess I just, I think because I remember it so fondly as something that I enjoyed and then it let me down as I watched it now, I think that just kind of, for me, puts it a bit lower than I would like it to be. Does that make sense? It does. So you went in with some expectations. Yes. Whereas I went in with no expectations because I have not seen this film before. All right. So and wh where so what I'm... are you thinking then? Right. And I'm writing as I'm typing. I see so this. I may seem <laughs> a little distracted. All right. So where I was going to put it, I'm looking at a review scale and I've given, I was thinking eight, Oof. but I looked at the other things I gave eight to and it's, not quite up to snuff with them. And so I am probably going to go down to a seven. <sighs> Though with your review, like I, I'm getting lower and lower as I listen <laughs> to your opinions. Um, so I think I'll stop at a 6.5. Because like the emotional motes hit me great in the beginning. I think if it had kept up that pace, I think if it had kept up the quality of storytelling that it started with, and in some parts it does, but it's not the main story. Like the little notes of what we see of his family, or the little things of him interacting with uh, Sarah Jessica Parker, or the ship dynamic at first, is really great, but it doesn't deliver on those things later in the film. It starts these really interesting concepts and then just can't bring it all together in the end. Right. And what like what we talked about, I think as an adult, hearing Pee-wee Herman's voice coming out of the spaceship kind of pulls me yeah. out of it. I think as a kid, I would have enjoyed that because I liked watching Pee-wee's Playhouse as a kid. And he's that goofy personality that a child can relate to maybe. As an adult, I don't feel like it maybe fit a spaceship very well, 
but maybe that's just me. I don't know. I don't know. I've I don't have known many spaceships. I couldn't tell you how accurate that impersonation is. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think where I'm gonna land is a a six point five, just because. There were so many good things in this film that they just didn't follow through on. So I think if they had been able to end it better, it would have rated a lot higher on my scale. See, that's that's what my pro- I was thinking five even, and then I'm looking at other things that I've rated a five, and some of those I liked better than this one. So that's kind of where I'm like, oh, I'll go down a little bit. Okay. But, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, it's a tough one. <laughs> so this is the point where Sarah would normally tell our audience where they can go online to find us should they choose to do so. I don't normally do this bit, and I didn't prep it, so I may... Well, we're going to do it. We'll see how well I do. (laughs) Um, So you can find us on Facebook at Retrograding Podcast. You can find our Facebook group instead of page on Retrograding Party Line. That's where you can interact with each other. Um, you can, our website is retrograding.fireside.fm. The music is done by Dominique Barnes. And I think that's everything that Sarah says normally. I may have forget, forgotten stuff. Don't at me. And you can at me because <laughs> we don't have a Twitter. All right. So <laughs> it's going to take us to our final segment, which is guys, I learned something today. And for our audience, as always, I have not prepared this one. I normally don't prepare this one. I haven't done it in episodes, but this is the best I could come with, with up with on the fly. And it is simply, if this film has taught me anything, it's that physics is flexible. So, debate whether or not that's true, reflect on it for the coming month, and we will catch you guys next time.